Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We've launched a study of this amazing epistle, and I can already tell you the excitement that it has generated in my own soul with respect to theology, practical application, love for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and my own depth of understanding in biblical truth. This morning we're going to be isolating our attention on one verse, and that is Ephesians 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Let me read that for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies or heavenly places in Christ. For years, there has been a theory that has fascinated astrophysicists as well as philosophers. It began to gain popularity in the first part of the 20th century and actually was studied as a uh, possibility of physics and astrophysics. The idea has also driven a lot of fantasy literature uh, in recent decades and has found its way into the sci-fi industry on big screens. The concept is that of what they call a multiverse. Now, what I mean by multiverse is not a Bible with multiple verses. A multiverse is talking about multiple universes. The simple explanation of a multiverse is that there are parallel universes or realities or realms or dimensions that exist alongside what we experience in our own universe that are unseen but real. In his Forbes magazine article of May, 19, May 15, 2019, titled, This is Why the Multiverse Must Exist, Ethan Siegel writes this, quote, The multiverse is the idea that our universe and all that's contained within it is just one small small part of a larger structure. The larger entity encapsulates our observable universe as a smaller part of a universe that extends beyond the limits of our observations. That entire structure, the unobservable universe, may itself be a part of a larger space-time that includes many other disconnected universes which may or may not be similar to the universe we inhabit, end quote. Now, if you follow along even partially, that sounds pretty fantastical, right? Universes that exist outside of our experience, outside of space and time. But don't dismiss the idea so fast. Don't dismiss the idea of another realm, another dimension, another universe that is real and that exists that's beyond our experience. No, I'm not talking about parallel dimensions of sci-fi where there's another Rick Holland that exists in another way. But the concept has an interesting comparison to something that is very, very real according to God's word. And that reality is what we're going to be studying and looking at this morning. Paul speaks of a dimension invisible to us that he calls the heavenlies or the heavenly places. Another universe that is as real as the one we're sitting in, but unobservable right now. He tells uh, 
uh, uh, other readers of his epistles that the Corinthians specifically, that right now we walk by faith in that universe. One day we will walk by sight. We will see it. It's all too easy, though, to dismiss things we cannot see. But think for a moment how easy it is for you and, and for me to, to believe in things that we don't see, to believe in things that are not tangible, I mean, most of you shop online. Do you understand the exercise of faith in that? Forces that you don't see, you believe will exist, like your safety and security. I always think about this in flying in an airplane. I believe in physical forces that will allow that multi-ton piece of metal to get up in the air. I also believe in the training of the pilots that I can't see. There are lots of exercises of faith. How about when we deposit our money in the bank? We hope they'll keep it safe, right? How about when you were driving this morning and you put your foot on the brakes? You exercised an enormous amount of faith that all of the, the mechanical things that have to go where the hydraulics are expressed and the, the, uh, the brakes are applied and the slowing happens would actually happen and you didn't see it. What about when you submit to anesthesia for surgery? You hope they operate on the right part of your body with the right acumen and the right uh, cure. Uh, you hope that they'll wake you up. Or when you take medicines, do you really know what's going on at the microbiological level when you put those pills in your mouth? Even eating food at a restaurant, what an exercise of faith that is. You read something on a menu, they bring it to you, and you don't know what happened before that. When we cross bridges, you assume that they're going to stay up. When we ride a roller coaster, even the simple drinking of water is an exercise of faith. And I can tell you firsthand from drinking water overseas that I should not have, have uh, let go into my system that that is an amazing exercise of faith to drink water that someone has treated. We also believe in oxygen. And perhaps most frequently, we believe in forces that actually enable someone to make a telephone call to us on our own telephone, our cell phone, without wires or physical connections. Yes, you and I believe in the ability to exercise faith in things that you cannot see. And yet, when it comes to believing in the heavenlies, spiritual realities that are beyond this world, that Paul and the New Testament writers and even the Old Testament writers have expressed as real realities in another dimension outside of this one, we suddenly become doubters. Let me propose to you this. Misunderstanding the, the real multiverse, our physical world and the world in which God resides and in which we inherit spiritual blessings is real. And I think that misunderstanding the multiverse in which we live is perhaps our greatest spiritual challenge. I think misunderstanding the realities that exist beyond our own eyes are, can rob us of joy. This misunderstanding can, can rob us of contentment and it can also make us doubt the things that the Bible tells us are true. Paul understands this. He gets it. He articulates that. So in these opening words to the Ephesians, he speaks directly to the reality of another dimension. He asks us by faith 
to transverse the divide between that reality and ours. Now, a little background as we dive into verse 3. We did verses 1 and 2, the greeting last time, and now we're starting into verse 3. Verse 3 begins uh, a sentence that in the original Greek extends from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. One complex run-on sentence. It is the longest Greek sentence in the New Testament. And a survey of the commentaries that talk about this, this sentence are, are incredible. I, I don't think I've ever read such descriptions of a portion of Scripture as I read in the last two weeks on this passage. Let me just share some of that with you. A commentator named, named Finley says this, We enter this epistle through a magnificent gateway, speaking of this sentence. It's a golden chain of many links or a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. William Hendrickson likens it to a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. E.K. Simpson compares it to some long-winded racehorse careering onward at full speed. John McKay likens it to a musical simile. He says, this rhapsodic adoration is comparable to the overture of an opera which contains the successive melodies that are to follow. And Armitage Robinson suggests that it is like the preliminary flight of an eagle rising and wheeling around as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. Those are quite descriptive statements of this sentence. So these 12 verses from verse 13 to verse 14 are like a gateway, like a golden chain, like a kaleidoscope, like a snowball, like a racehorse, like an operatic overture and the flight of an eagle. Those are such as the descriptions of scholars. It's a majestic sentence without parallel. What's it about? Here you go, ready? This whole sentence... Is, is written by Paul to show us how to praise God in an informed way. It's giving informed praise to God. That's what this long sentence is about. He has a repeated refrain that goes throughout this. Uh, he talks about uh, the, the, the praise of his glory and to the kind, the kind intention of his will redounds to the praise of his glorious grace in verse 6 and, and also in, in verse 11, in verse 12 rather, and also in verse 14. To the praise of his glory, to praise his greatness. Now we talk a lot about praising God. We sang a moment ago about praising God. It's kind of become a catchphrase in Christianity. Praise God. But do we really understand what it means to give praise to God? These 12 verses are a praise factory. They tell us how to give glory and praise to God. Psalm 150 verse 6 tells us, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This tells us how to do that. It puts jet engine fuel in our tanks to energize and generate rightful, informed praise to our amazing God and His glorious works. 
Remember what we've said the last few weeks, that the theme of Ephesians is the work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ. The work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ. And these first words, in this opening long sentence, he talks about the work of God and the wealth of God expressed in the Son of God and applied by the Spirit of God. I think very briefly, I can tell you that this long sentence sets the angle for our understanding of this grand theme in the entire book. Now, full disclosure, it's going to take us a while to get through this sentence, and I don't think we should be in any hurry. So don't, uh, don't think we're going to finish it in the next week or two. There is so much here, and it's like going to the Grand Canyon. You want to take as much time as you can to see all of the views that it affords But for today, we're going to dig into just this introduction part of the sentence in verse 3. As we do, we're going to break it down by finding three considerations for experiencing experiencing spiritual blessings. And I put in parentheses, across the dimensional divide. The dimensional divide between our physical reality and the spiritual realities that Paul is going to talk about. Three considerations for experiencing spiritual blessings across the dimensional divide between our reality and the reality that belongs to God. The first consideration is the source of these spiritual blessings, and that is God the Father. The source of these blessings that are expressed to us in the spiritual dimension is God the Father. Verse 3 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Paul begins with a a song of praise. We talk about praising God a lot, as I said. We use it as a catchphrase, praise God, praise God. We sing about praising God. But do we truly understand what it means to give God praise? Are we a part of the Psalm 150, verse 6 crowd that let everything that has breath praise the Lord? Well, Paul begins with a strange sort of passive statement. Blessed be God. Now, we typically think of blessings as something that God gives, and Paul inverts that polarity and says, no, God be blessed. Be blessed by whom? It's a tricky question and a real simple answer. He is always blessed by the demonstration of his grace, his kindness, the kind intention of his will that we'll read in verse 5. He is blessed by his own exercise of grace toward us, but he is also blessed by our obedience to him and adoration of him. The Greek word for blessed here is an interesting word from which we get our word eulogy. It's a message of praise and commendation. It's the declaration of a person's goodness, a reason to say great things about them. And because no one is truly good except God, according to Matthew 19, verse 17, our supreme eulogy, our supreme praise should be directed toward God and God alone. So Paul begins the message of this epistle by pointing our hearts to the fact that God's people should have a spiritual reflex to bless him for his great goodness. Blessed be God. Blessed means to experience the the happiness that comes from the goodness of God's created universe. And no one should enjoy the blessing of God's goodness more than God. And he also allows us to do that as well. 
Specifically, Paul points us to the praise, look at the, look at the text, of God the Father. You see that? Now, God is our Father, but here he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read this sentence from verses 3 to 14 very carefully, and I would encourage you to do this, you can mark it, maybe print it out and, and do some scribbling around on it. Think about this. God the Father is the subject of almost every verb in this sentence. Now, the sentence is intentionally Trinitarian. God the Father is said to be the giver of all spiritual blessings. God the Son is the means of the Father's gifts to give us those spiritual blessings. And God the Spirit is the applier and the generator of all these spiritual blessings. But the anchor is God the Father. Now, a footnote, real briefly. God the Father, I have come to believe, when you look at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Really, the forgotten member of the Trinity is the Father. We speak a lot about Christ, and well, we should. We have spoken much in, the, in recent decades about the Holy Spirit and his ministry to us, and, and we should. But how many times do we stop and remember God the Father? He has almost become the neglected, forgotten member of the Trinity when he is the Father. He's the source of generating all spiritual blessings. Now, the ministry of the three persons of the Trinity is found, let me just give you a head start, in eight different passages in this epistle. Ephesians 1, 4 to 14, we're gonna see all three members of the Trinity show up. Also in verse 17. In chapter two, verse 18 and 22, we'll see all three members of the Trinity show up. In chapter three, verses four and five, we'll see all three members. Also in verses 14 to 17 of chapter 3, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, I just tell you all that to say that Paul is very deliberate in grouping together all three members of the Trinity as one unified God in his ministry to us. But here we find out that he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I told you that sometimes Paul calls Jesus Christ Jesus. Sometimes he calls him Jesus Christ. Sometimes he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see all three titles, that is a flashing light on the dashboard. And we see them all here. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean he's the God as if there are other gods. It just means that he is the Father, not only of the creation, He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus told um, the disciples in the upper room, if you have, Thomas in particular, if you have seen me, you have what? Seen the father. One and the same. He calls him Lord Jesus Christ. Kurios, master, the one who determines and deserves our all. Jesus, identifying him as the God-man born in Bethlehem, grown up in Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem. Very specific. And then Christ, he is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the Jewish expectation. He identifies him so specifically, we, we walk away saying he's the anointed one, he's the one who became a man, and he is the one to whom I owe my entire existence and life and affections and obedience. Notice that, notice that Paul clearly anchors our understanding of Jesus to the eternal God, the Father, his Father. 
So verse three is the statement of God the Father's blessing and verses four to 14 will be the description and the itemized listing of those spiritual blessings because the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will be the source of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And beginning in verse four is the itemized list of those blessings. He's the source. So we have to remember that if, if we are going to pursue or enjoy anything meaningful in life informed by the other dimension, the heavenly realm in which God lives, it has to come from God. There is no other access point that we can get to true happiness, to, to grace and peace. And remember, we said last week that grace and peace are very important as a tandem. Grace is everything we need Everything we don't deserve, he gives us in grace. And peace, which is the Greek word irene, or the Hebrew word shalom, is everything that, that people wanted to, to make them content. A contented, happy lifestyle. And that's everything we want. So in Christ, we have everything we need and everything we want. And that's a gift in Christ from the Father. So consider the source of spiritual blessings. Happiness, contentment, peace, everything we want, everything we need has to come from the Father. Secondly, we should find the recipients of these spiritual blessings who are that's believers. The recipients of these spiritual blessings, that's believers. The first consideration for experiencing spiritual blessings across the dimensional divide is considering the source, which is God the Father. Second, the recipients. That recipient, those recipients are believers. Look at the little phrase. God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. First thing you have to ask is, who is the us? And the us are the Ephesians to whom he's writing along with the author, Paul. He's saying believers. He's blessed us. Also notice that the first issue related to this spiritual blessing is its sufficiency who has blessed us with it's in the word every every spiritual blessing very important small little particle in the new testament greek pas or pasa or pun pas is the total totality of focus on individual components and it can mean each and every and any he has given us each spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, any spiritual blessing comes from God the Father. Now, it's important to say that because most of the time you and I find ourselves in an endless pursuit of trying to find blessings in this life that we hope will make us happy and content. Look, I preached for two years through the book of Ecclesiastes here. You understand what I understand, that the blessings he's given us, he's given us to enjoy the things in this world, a nice steak, a riding with a, a very smooth fountain pen, eating a Krispy Kreme donut, enjoying a little, a little uh, uh, infant's giggles. All of those are gifts that are from him. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings of this life. But when we seek those as the final way to be happy and content, we miss what this verse is telling us, which is the generator and the source of every spiritual blessing is God the Father. And he's blessed us with them all. All of them, every one, sufficiency. 
Every blessing you want, every blessing you need are found in the Father's gifts through the Son. And one of the gracious things he does is when we begin pursuing any sort of happiness outside of him, his gracious disposition toward us will make sure that we don't find lasting happiness in those earthly blessings. Because if we did, we would stop looking for him. In the coming weeks, we're going to observe a, a representative list of such of, these, such of these blessings. We're going to see his initiative is set forth very plainly in verse 4. He himself is the is is subject of every one of these ble- blessing-generating um, uh, phrases and verbs. God the Father has blessed us in verse 3. He's the one who chose us in verse 4. He's the one who destined us to be his sons in verse 5. He freely bestowed his gifts on us in grace in verse 6. Literally, he graced us with grace. He lavished his grace on us in verse 8. He also made known to us his will and purpose which he set forth in Christ. He unites all things in verse 9 and 10. He, and add to all of this, the Father accomplishes all of these things according to the counsel of his own internal will in verse 11. Now that's just a tour of the verbs. When you look at the nouns, Paul points to the, God's love and God's grace, to his will, to his purpose, to his plan. It is all pointing back to God. How many times do we say it around here? God has no desire to be the... A, 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 a placeholder or a piece of our life. He deserves and desires to be the point of our life. Not a part, but the point. These heavenly realities are described in the Bible in two different ways. Think about this. First, they are with regard to time. These heavenly realities that we're going to study in the coming verses that are comprised of every spiritual blessing are outside of time. They last forever. But they're also outside of space. What I mean by that is we can experience tastes of of his blessings in this life, but we don't get the fullness. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight, that full experience. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, revelation of God's purpose in history, sealing by the Holy Spirit, inheritance or hope for the future. All of these are spiritual blessings that are not tangible. You can't feel them, hold them. But they are nonetheless equally as real and can be ascertained and obtained by faith spiritually and we begin to have a foretaste of glory divine. I love how Walter Layfield summarizes this. He says this, Today's remarkable flow of new information about our physical universe, which should increase our confidence in and awe of God as creator, may lead others to think of heaven as a distant, irrelevant place with little connection to earth and the visible universe. Ephesians, however, shows that there is a greater universe of space and time than we might imagine. Heaven above and the age to come may exist in a different dimension, but the heavenly realms are real and integral parts of God's creation and are presently experienced, experientially accessible to Christians who are in Christ, end quote. That's a mouthful. What he's saying is the The spiritual realm is equally as real as the earthly realm and you can by faith grasp that and live in those realities 
and rise above any and all problems and troubles and turmoil in this world. In the heavenlies, as we'll see in the book of Ephesians, we'll find a blessed rest and hope, a home in which we are greatly blessed. All these blessings are applied to us, as we'll see later in this sentence, by the Holy Spirit, and they are found in Christ. Again, let me just remind you of, he says, all spiritual blessings. He's chosen us to be objects of his eternal, sovereign, pure, holy love in predestination and in election. He has predestined or appointed us to adoption to children to himself. He adopted us. He accepts us in Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. We've been redeemed from an old way of living and from our pathway to hell to a pathway to heaven and enjoyment of God himself. We become members of the great family of all the faithful in heaven and on earth. We have an inheritance that waits for us after death in Christ. And we have a present seal and earnest of the inheritance, a foretaste of our future glory by the gift of the Holy Spirit who convicts us and encourages us and empowers us. That's quite a promise. And we're gonna get to unpack each of those realities in these coming verses. Coming verses. Now that leads us really to kind of the core to really think about and to, to meditate on, to kind of noodle on, which is the third consideration for experiencing spiritual blessings across the dimensional divide. We have the source, that's God the Father. We saw the recipients of spiritual blessings, that's believers. And now we see the realm of spiritual blessings. That is what I'll call the heavenlies, or the New American Standard says the heavenly places, literally the heavenlies. He says, these happen in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, the last phrase in verse 3 points us to the sphere or the, to the dimensions in which these divine blessings are granted and received. Notice that there are two descriptions, in the heavenlies and in Christ. You see that? In heavenlies, in Christ. Two very important descriptors. He first describes this realm as spiritual, as a spiritual realm with the clause in the heavenly places, or better, since no geographical location is implied, in the heavenlies. Now, if you want to geek out a little bit on this, it's really interesting. How should we understand this, this idea of the heavenlies? It's the first time Paul uses this phrase, and he will use it five times in the book of Ephesians. By the way, he only uses this word in the heavenlies in Ephesians, which tells us how important that was to the specific Ephesian context. And remember when we looked at Acts 19 and 20 with all that they were dealing with, with the sons of Sceva and supernatural forces, it makes absolute perfect sense that he would speak so much about the demonic and angelic and spiritual world that God, in which God presides and exists in a physical and real way. The resurrected Savior is there and how that compares to our physical reality now. What does this mean, the heavenlies? Well, the word heaven is used in Scripture in a few different ways. For example, it's used to distinguish between the heaven of nature, the sky that you would look up to and see the snow falling from this morning, and the heaven of grace, that's eternal life already received and enjoyed by God's people. And then there's even the heaven of glory, which is the final state of the redeemed, the glorified world in which we'll live. But I don't think any of those are what he's speaking of here. 
The heavenlies here needs to be comprehended differently than those three. Specifically, he's not speaking of the sky, nor of grace, nor of the future glory. Paul is pointing to the unseen world that exists alongside ours right now that we have interaction with whether we realize it or not. When you look at these five uses of this word in Ephesians, they all come together to indicate that the heavenlies are the dimension in which principalities continue to operate. Chapter 3, verse 10, and 6, 12. Those are the demons that are alive and at work. It's the place where Christ reigns supreme and his people reign with him in chapter 1, verse 20, and 2, 6. It's also the realm in which, therefore, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in our verse in 1, 3. So verse 3 lays out the reality of the spiritual realm or the dimension or the realm in which these things are visible and exist. And the rest of the paragraph unpacks the particulars of this. Now, if you look at this from the perspective of time, we're introduced to the rest of the paragraph by looking at the fact that we'll see how these spiritual realities affected us in the past. We were chosen. In the present, we're adopted and in the future will be glorified. All three of those, past, present, and future, are discussed in this one sentence, verses 3 to 14. So if you're a counter, you like to count, and I, uh, I tend to do that when I, when I study, you can count and see that, listen to this, in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, Jesus Christ is mentioned either by name or title, or by pronoun, no fewer than 15 times. So he's blessed us in the heavenlies, but also in Christ Jesus, Jesus our Lord. The phrase in Christ or in him specifically occurs 11 times. So Paul calls believers saints who are faithful in Christ in the first two verses. Beginning in 3 to 14, he draws out the implications of that expression, describes our new principle of humanity and solidarity in Christ, with Christ, for Christ. The realm of our existence ought to be the oxygen, almost as it were, that we breathe of the reality of the resurrected Lord Jesus who is with us in whom we exist and live. So here's the question, kind of backing up from that. Are you most troubled by this world that's not the real and eternal world? Equally important question is, are you most excited by this world? Do you find your hope and do you find your security and do you find the things you look forward to most in this world? Let me give you a simple question. When is the last time you had an honest five or ten minutes where you sat and thought, literally, physically, in a real way, the Lord Jesus, who is alive, promised to return? Wouldn't it be great if he came back today? The reality of the Lord Jesus ought to have epic implications in who we are and in how we think. 
Now this is just introductory today in verse three because he's gonna give us the spiritual realities that we can anchor our hope to where when we, when we have doubts and when we have troubles, we can go back and say, oh, oh, but I remember what I possess. I remember what's in my spiritual bank account. I can't draw on all of that in this life, but I do know the one day when I will draw on it fully and that is a day in which I hope and on which I believe. So, let's back up now. He's blessed us with everything we need in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. The God, God the Father has so kindly given us that. And if you're like me, you think, yeah, but that's not easy to grasp. It's not easy to understand. It's not easy to believe sometimes. Jesus understood that and explains a clear pathway to understanding spiritual realities as distinguished from and also in relation to physical realities. And I want to show you that. Go back for a moment to John chapter 3. John 3. This is so gracious of God to give us this story. Because he interacts with a man who had trouble believing spiritual realities. And yet Jesus tells him, gives him a clue for how to find the reality of those things we cannot see and anchor our hope to them. He gives us an incredible clue here. John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi! We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered to Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a lot in that. Regeneration, rebirth, born again, but also see the kingdom of God. Something that's not visible. Nicodemus said to him, well, um, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, Now, before you, we know how this story ends, but imagine this for the first time. Be, be a little gracious to our brother Nicodemus, okay? Someone comes to you and says, tell you what, you want to have spiritual birth? You have to be born a second time. Born again. You would probably ask the same question that Nicodemus does. How can a man be born when he is old? And then he gets very very graphic. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? A full-grown man doesn't fit inside a uterus. That's exactly what he's saying here. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter, not only see, as we said a minute ago, but enter into the kingdom of God. Now he starts explaining. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus just identified the two realms, the two dimensions that Paul does, the physical and the heavenlies. 
Do not be amazed, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. And now here it is. Here's the clue that we're looking for. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do you see what Jesus did there? He used the natural world and the experience of wind to prove the spiritual world exists by saying this. Do you, the wind blows. Do you know where it started? Can you go to the place and stand there and say, this is where the wind started? No, you can't. Do, do you know where it stops and where it goes? No, you can't. But you know what you can see? You can see the leaves blowing. You can see your, your shirt or your, your toga that they're wearing flashing and, and kind of waving in the wind. You can see the dirt swirl. You can see the trees swaying. You can see the effects of the wind which proves the wind that you cannot see. In the same way, you can see the effects of the Spirit of God and believe in His existence and His realities even though you don't see Him. The effects of what God does can and should prove his existence and his blessing. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, um, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. You should have figured this out from the effects of the Spirit of God. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Look at that principle. If you can't see the, the relationship of cause and effect in the wind and in the world, how will you understand cause and effect in the spiritual dimension? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, that's the Son of Man, Jesus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's looking at something physically in this world that has spiritual implications and application beyond the things we see. As Moses lifted up that serpent, the Son of Man must be lifted up, speaking to his crucifixion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see how he says what you do in this world, believing in Jesus, has effects in the other dimension? For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world would be saved through him. So he who believes in him is not judged but he who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You put all that together, and what I think Jesus is fundamentally saying is this. You can believe in spiritual blessings and in spiritual realities because God has already demonstrated you are able to believe in forces you don't understand and cannot see in the natural world, like the wind. You know what he's saying? If you have faith 
that you can get on an airplane, drink the water out of your spigot, that you can cross a bridge and it won't fall. If you have faith to believe in purposes and in forces that you cannot see or prove with your eye in that moment, you can also believe in spiritual realities that are beyond your experience right now. That's wildly encouraging to me. Doesn't take a PhD or an engineer to realize God is real. Even if I don't see, taste, touch, feel, hear, smell him, just as the wind is real and I don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. What a grace that the Lord Jesus teaches us that we are functioning, high-functioning faith exercisers all the time. Exercising faith in the spiritual realities is the step that Paul wants us to step into in Ephesians 1.3. A person's observations about cause and effect of the things we cannot see in the physical world should encourage us that believing the realities of spiritual dimensions and spirit, the spiritual dimension and the spiritual realm is very possible. I love the fact that Paul doesn't even try to prove it. He says, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, it's just fact. And you ought to say, well, what are those? And while does he unpack that in the rest of this verse? So where are you in relation to your understanding and your belief in the fact that Jesus was physically real he lived a perfect life. He offers salvation to anyone who would believe in his name as we read in John three sixteen, And he offers faith to any who would come to him, accepting him by believing that he is and that he has done and that he is coming again, that he would forgive us for sins and offer us eternal life. Well, I, I trust that that is the, the core of your spiritual realities that you hold on to. And if you don't have that faith, you can experience God's gift of that faith by simply believing that is true. 